Well, hey, welcome River West Church. Glad to be with you this morning. Those of you here in the building, those of you tuning online, it's great to be together. What a sweet time of worship. Man, that was just absolutely wonderful. Uh, we should take this show on the road because we have some great singers in this room, man. Uh, please pull out your Bibles and open to the Gospel of Luke. Hey, we've come to the final stretch in our study of the Gospel of Luke. We only have three more chapters to go. Isn't that amazing? We will finish our study of Luke on Sunday, July 4th, Independence Day. And I promise there's no connection there, all right? There's no connection. But we've been studying the Gospel of Luke since October of 2018. Can you believe that? There are people in our church who have had not one, but two babies since we started. <laughs> we're like multiplying as we study this, this book. So it's been a long time and we're going to finish this study. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. We're going to chew off bigger portions of text as we go so that we can land the plane on July 4th. And even as I say that, I'm about to contradict myself uh, because this morning we're only going to be able to cover six verses of chapter 22, the first six verses. You'll understand why in just a moment. The primary purpose of the first six verses of Luke 22 is to alert the reader that nothing is happening to Jesus on accident. Okay? None of the events of the passion None of the events of the suffering, none of the details are accidental. They're happening for a reason. Chapter 22 begins the narrative events that lead to the suffering and death of Christ. And one of Luke's primary goals right out of the gate is to remind the reader that every event, every detail, every action by every player in the drama, even the wicked ones, even the ones where the person acting thinks they're acting against the purpose of God, all of those things, God himself is weaving into his redemptive purposes for the world. It's what we call divine providence. Providence, big word, don't be intimidated by it. It's actually a beautiful word, a beautiful doctrine. I hope you come to love it as much as the scriptures love it today. Simply put, providence means God will carry through his eternal purpose of redemption, even through events and actions that appear to be against God. And that's what Luke 22 verses 1 through 6 is ultimately about. We read along with me now. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to, to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. The word of the Lord. Here's a riddle. What do 
the Passover, satanic possession, and the greatest betrayal in all of human history have in common with each other. Bring that up at a party sometime, just a little party favor. Here's a riddle, okay? What do the Passover, satanic possession, and the greatest betrayal in human history have in common? I'll tell you what they have in common. They all work together under the providence of God to show us the true meaning of the cross. The timing of the Passover in verse 1 is not an accident. The Passover coinciding with the suffering of Christ, that's not an accident. The presence of Satan right at this moment is not an accident. The very specific sin of betrayal is not an accident. Every piece is needed in order to understand the full significance of the suffering of Christ. Every piece God is folding into his redemptive purposes. And so this morning, what I want to do is I'm going to just take a few moments with each of those, okay? Passover, Satan, <laughs> and betrayal. And my goal is by the end, you will love divine providence like never before. Amen? Amen. You glad to be here still? Or are you like looking for an exit? Where's the exit? Okay, no, this is really good. Here we go. Passover. Friends, write this down. The timing of the Passover reveals the core purpose of the death of Jesus. A final and ultimate Passover of human sin through the blood of a divine lamb. Now we know from the other gospel accounts that the religious leaders in Jerusalem tried to wait until after the Passover to kill Jesus. They they wanted to put space between this festival and their plot. Here's how Mark describes it. Mark 14, 1 and 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They wanted to wait. Why? Because this was one of the most sacred feasts for the Jewish people. It was very important to them. Luke actually, in verse 1 there, you'll notice he takes two feasts and he puts them together, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover. And the reason Luke does that is that they happened right after each other. Passover was one day followed immediately by a seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. And both of them point back to the Exodus story, which you can read later, Exodus 12. The Passover was a feast that commemorated the night when the people of God were passed over by the angel of death. Do you remember this story? It's so beautiful. God had said to the people, each, every faithful Jewish family, take a lamb without blemish and kill it and eat every bit of the meat. You will need nourishment. Don't leave a single bit uneaten, but take the blood and spread it over your doorposts. And when the angel of death passes through and he sees the blood of the lamb painted over your doorposts, he will pass over. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, Unleavened Bread celebrated the beginning of the seven-day flight out of slavery. The people of God didn't even have time to wait for their, for their bread to rise, so they made unleavened bread, and they fleed Egypt, they fleed bondage, they fleed evil and slavery, and these feasts were precious to the people of God because they captured all of the meaning of God's divine purpose and redemption. 
And Jerusalem would have been flooded with pilgrims, okay? And the chief priests knew it. People would have come from all over Galilee and Judea. They would have come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So the the chief priests knew we cannot kill Jesus publicly. He's so popular. If we kill him publicly, there will be a riot. So they thought we have to wait till this till this celebration is over. That was their timeline, but God had a very different timeline than the chief priests. Where they wanted to create space between the sacrifice of the true lamb of God, God wanted to make sure that that sacrifice happened right on the day of the festival that had been pointing to his sacrifice for thousands of years. Astounding. And so imagine Judas walks into the door and says, I think I've got an opportunity. I think chief priests, soldiers, I can deliver him to you. I can tell you his secret movements. I can lead you to him when there's no crowds around. And the chief priests thought, this is an opportunity we cannot pass by. Evil leaders, Judas, even Satan, all believe they are at work to bring about their purposes only to discover that unwittingly they're playing right into God's predetermined plan. Every time I think of that, I cannot help but think about Washington Family Ranch. Anybody know Washington, Young Life's property out in Eastern Oregon, Wild Horse Canyon, Washington Family Ranch? If you know the history of this place, you know that it was built by um, uh, the Rajneeshis and it was built for purposes that would probably be considered by most to be very much against the purposes of the God of Scripture. Can I just, because everyone, is everyone with me on that one? Okay, so this, but this was in a magnificent property with tons of buildings, hotels. There was a point in the 1980s when Big Muddy at that time had the fourth largest bus system, public bus system in the state of Oregon. Can you believe that? It was a massive property. And when it was taken away by the government, it sat vacant for several years until someone took it and donated it to Young Life. And ever since that day, the gospel has been preached summer after summer after summer, and thousands of kids have come to saving faith in Christ through people who unwittingly thought they were accomplishing their own purposes. Amen? Isn't that how God works? It's so amazing. It's so amazing. I love it. The true Passover Lamb of God must die on the day of the celebration, the ancient feast, which pointed to the redemption that would come through the blood of a lamb. Providence, God at work. And this is where Satan comes in, okay? We look at verse three with me. Verse three, this, this is something that we've not talked about yet. Verse three is actually the first time that Satan is named in this book since back in chapter four, verse 13. He's been inactive. At least we think he's been inactive. And so you probably don't even remember when we were back in chapter four. That was before you had several babies. Okay, but it was a long time ago that we were studying chapter four when Satan was last mentioned. And so just to give you some context, it was back in chapter four that Satan had tempted Jesus in the wilderness to no avail. 
And when the temptation, the attempt to tempt Jesus is over, Luke tells us when the devil had ended every temptation, this is 4.13, he departed from him until an opportune time. That word is very interesting. An opportune time. Satan departs and he's looking for an opportunity. And in his mind, that moment has come. And so we turn the page on 22 and look what happens. Verse three, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus. That, friends, that is one of the most startling statements in the Gospel of Luke. It's shocking. And even even as you're just reading it and looking at it, I know you have lots of questions about what what is happening here. I promise you, I'm going to answer those questions in just a moment, okay? But first, let me just alert you, give away the purpose of Satan's presence at this moment in the gospel, okay? At this moment. Write this down. The activity of Satan reveals that the cross deals with more than just human sin. It is God's response to spiritual evil. There's more going on here than just Judas. There's more going on here than just crowds. There's more going on here than human disobedience and sin. The mission of Jesus has cosmic dimensions. There are forces at work here that are behind the scenes and evil in our world that's always on a counter mission against God. You say, what's the mission of of Satan? Here's how you know what the mission of Satan is. Figure out what God is doing in the world. Satan's trying to oppose it. That's how you know what Satan's doing. But a person says, wait a minute, I don't believe in, I don't believe in something like a devil. I don't believe in that. That's, or I don't, I don't believe in, uh, category of moral evil, like some sort of ultimate source of moral evil. I don't, I don't believe any of that. And that's a very popular view to hold today in our culture. But here's the thing. In order to hold that view, you have to constantly ignore some really disturbing things that are happening in our world all the time. Even right here in our own city, right under our noses. On Friday night, we had a forum here in our building. It was absolutely fabulous forum on Justice, where we looked at the issue of sex slavery in our city in Portland. If you missed that forum, I, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to go to YouTube and watch the forum. Christopher opened the scriptures and taught us about what the Bible teaches about God's heart for justice. And then we had guests from our community um, a woman named Esther Nelson who founded a ministry called Safety Compass. Safety Compass is a ministry we've partnered with for years at our church. It's a nonprofit ministry that that seeks to provide advocacy to commercial sexual exploitation survivors. So we're talking about usually young people who have been groomed by pimps and then used for commercial sexual exploitation. And when they survive that, they need Christian people who love them, who can walk alongside them and help them. And we had a police officer here named Chad Opitz, who is a detective with the Beaverton Police Department. And he is the primary investigator in our city on all sex trafficking cases. And we interviewed both of them 
And it was, it was astounding. It was shocking. It was inspiring. It was every possible emotion you can imagine. I, I cannot encourage you to go and listen to it. And here's what happened to me. I was sitting right there. I was listening to these two people talk about how their Christian faith drives them to fight something that is so evil in our world. And I heard them talk about their ministry. And I heard them talk about the way that people groom elementary school children for this industry. And you know what I thought to myself? I thought the only category that's strong enough to explain why something like this happens in our world is satanic evil. That's the only category. So you can, you can tell me all day, I don't believe in a devil. And I, I say to you, spend one day listening to Esther talk about what she is fighting in our city. I promise you, you will believe in a devil afterwards. You will believe. But make no mistake about it, the greatest act of evil in the history of the world was the murder of the Son of God. And the most disturbing part about it was the role that Judas played because he was one of Jesus', Jesus closest friends. Satan entered into Judas. And the reader's thinking, what? Judas? Judas spent years with Jesus, one of his closest friends. Heard Jesus teach. Judas was one of the 12 who was sent out, one of the 72 who went out and preached with power. He cast out demons. People came to saving faith. Judas was so close to Jesus at the Last Supper that he was dipping his bread in the same cup that Jesus was using. And Satan entered into him. Amazing. And the reader's thinking, how did this happen? What? So many questions. Is this full-on demonic possession? Is this just influence? Is this, wait a minute, is this Satan overpowering someone who otherwise was really godly and, and good and had faith in Jesus? And the answer to that question is, there's biblical evidence to tell us that Judas had already opened the door. You know where the Bible says, don't give the devil a foothold? There's a reason for that. The devil cannot overpower someone unless he's given a foothold. There's a moment in the Gospel of John where Mary comes and she's anointing Jesus' feet. You remember this moment? And she's overcome with gratitude and she pours what would today be thousands of dollars worth of perfume on Jesus' feet. And who was the person who had a problem with this? Do you remember it was Judas? And it's really interesting, John tells us, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas had already opened the door. He was already open to a craving for money. And Satan sees the opportunity. And here's what happened. Okay, so we have, we have Passover. Now, track with me for a moment. Passover. We have Satan, the presence of Satan. And then we have this very specific moment. Satan enters in to Judas. And what is the purpose? What is the purpose? 
The purpose is a very specific kind of sin that Luke uses over and over and over again. It's the sin of betrayal. Betrayal. Whenever I think of betrayal, one of the first things that comes to mind is The Count of Monte Cristo. Have you ever read this book? More likely, have you ever seen this amazing movie? <laughs> Look at that. That's great. Jim Caviezel. And it's, it's an amazing, the book, here's what I've heard. I wish I was standing up or telling you I've read the novel, okay? But I'm not going to pretend that I'm that much of, a, of an avid reader, all right? But I've seen this movie, all right? And this story is a story that captures for me all of the brutal, emotional sort of heart of betrayal. It's like a story about betrayal. Jim Caviezel plays sort of the main character and everything's going great in his life and he's, he's got the dream girl, he's got the dream job, he's got a best friend. His be- they're, like, they're, like the, they're closer than a brother and out of nowhere his best friend stabs him in the back because you have to be really close to someone and they have to trust you in order to be stabbed in the back, right? And we're watching this movie and we get to the scene where, where, where the main character is betrayed by his best friend and Bridget begins crying. She's like, why did you make me watch this movie? This is so horrible. And then about two minutes later, she screams out, Superman, okay, she's Superman because that's Henry Cavill, all right, his debut as the son of Edmund Dantes, okay, that's just a little, okay, take that down, please, anyway, so now you have to go watch the movie, all right, we're watching this movie, and the whole movie is driving towards this dramatic, emotional moment of betrayal, because betrayal is a very specific kind of sin, you have to be an insider, to betray someone. This is not something you do from a distance and it's not something you can do to a stranger. Now look, betrayal is not just a random detail in this story. It's not an incidental. I'm gonna argue we can't understand the cross if we don't understand this moment. I did read one commentator who asked, is the betrayal required for the course of redemptive history? And his answer was no. And as I read it, I thought, I humbly, I just, I totally disagree. I think it's critical. And I have reasons. It's repeated over and over. If you look at verses four to six, this is clearly emphasis. Judas goes away and he meets with them and they have this moment. And the goal is I'm going to betray him, right? And they were glad. They agreed to give him money. The other gospels tell us he got 30, 30 shekels or it was 30 amount of coins. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And then look at verses just a few moments later when they're having the last supper, Jesus has instituted the last supper and he says, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table for the son of man goes at his, as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Did you know that there are Old Testament scriptures that specifically prophesy that the Messiah would be betrayed 
for 30 pieces of silver. Amazing. Prophesied in the Old Testament. John 13, 18, Jesus said, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Or Matthew 27, 9 and 10, then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord had directed me. Repeated, predicted, but here's the main thing, the meaning of betrayal. The me betrayal brings us to the very heart of human sin. It's the heart of sin. Because sin is fundamentally a betrayal. Think about this. Sin is not just some disconnected, uh, non-directed act of disobedience. It's very, it's up close and personal. It's first and foremost a betrayal against God. It's the sin of an insider. Imagine a child turning on her father or a son turning on his mother. And God says that helps get you a little bit inside of the heart of sin. So too often we think of sin as something we're doing out there, but it's right up and close and personal. Do you remember in the end of the gospel, we'll go there in a, in a, in a few weeks, at the moment when Jesus leads the, the soldiers to Jesus, do you remember what happens in that moment? He, at the moment that he's betraying Jesus, at the moment he's literally stabbing Jesus in the back, he kisses Jesus. Do you remember that? It's this powerful moment. It's like, cannot be an act. This is not an incidental. And Jesus says to Judas in that moment, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? Wow. Sin is deeply personal. Jesus died for that sin. And Jesus died as a result of this sin. So critical. So Judas is betraying. Satan is possessing. Chief priests are plotting. Crowds will soon be chanting, crucify him. Disciples will be denying. Soldiers will be whipping, mocking, and stabbing, nailing. Passersby will be spitting. And behind it all is the sovereign and gracious God who's folding all of this ugly into his beautiful redemptive purposes for the world. I cannot tell you how precious this is, friends. It's precious. And you say, Pastor, why should this matter to me? I mean, I hope you already know. But can I tell you why you, you, you absolutely need to embrace this with all of your heart? Your confidence in the gospel hinges on this truth, okay? It hinges on it. 
The reason the cross of Christ specifically has the power to save is because God in his providence is the main actor. Many people died on on Roman crosses. Have you ever thought about this? Scholars suggest perhaps thousands and thousands of people were crucified. So why is it that only one of those deaths has the power to save the world from sin? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason the death of Christ is the heart of the gospel is because God in love is doing it. And if you sever those, if you sever the cross from the providence of God, from the activity of God, you no longer have the gospel and you no longer have love. Paul said, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul said, be reconciled to God. If you take God's activity out of all of these events, and we're gonna study all of them, there is no reconciliation to God because God's not a part of it. It has to come from the divine purpose of God. And that's what makes it so incredibly powerful. And beautiful. And here's what's going to happen. You and I, along with other preachers in our church, we're going to start studying all of the events, all of the details, all of the narrative. We're going to see Jesus heading towards a cross with all of this momentum. And there's going to be all of this ugly and all of this wicked. And here's what I want you to keep in mind. God in his providence is folding all of that into his purposes to save. I love it. Will you pray with me? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we sit here in awe of your word, of your truth, of your perfect wisdom and power. Only you, Lord, could take ugliness and evil and sin and brokenness and somehow weave it together for your purposes in Christ. We don't understand it. We don't need to totally understand it. But help us to see it as we study the passion of our Savior Jesus. And God, would you even keep it fresh in our minds in this next moment as we eat and drink together as a church family, Lord. This precious truth. Thank you, Lord. We're aware of our own sin. We're aware of our own betrayal. We are aware of your unbelievable grace towards us in Christ. You loved us, God, while we were yet sinners. And to that we say, Thank you. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.